These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. Something that I did not appreciate about this part of the chapter that I sort of like was like rereading it and re-listening to it and thinking about it in relation to other moments with Harry previously. As we've just been talking about, who she is now is a progression of who she was in Arlington. But there is still a pattern there in terms of just like a lot of other people, the people in New Century are people that are inclined to desire to be of use. Mm-mm. And in Harry's case, that's almost the primary motive to how she interacts with the world. It's almost literal to a fault. Does she have a life outside what she is making for other people. She made armor for her father in order to protect him. She made weapons for James and Abigail because Annie expressed a need. She took the designs for her armor and went on to make the scorpion suit. It's entirely possible she also made Steamheart because she saw Edison and Tesla making their vehicles and wanted to participate by making her own version, seeing like, well, okay, so that one does that, and that one does that. I think I can do it better by making the more versatile Steamheart and everything like that. And the reason I bring that up in this moment is because, perhaps unlike previously, she repeatedly gets crestfallen when she's made something and be like, literally, I made this for you. And it isn't accepted, not as a rejection of her, but merely that, like, okay, you did an amazing job making this thing. It's not going to work for our purposes. But we are then relieved that Abby is sort of emotionally sensitive to the situation and meets Harry halfway on the armor. Therefore... Mm -hmm. The, the smile when Master Yagi was putting away the scorpion suit, that's mirrored on our own faces. Because, again, these are going to be our heroes on Team Steam. We want to see them be able to make friends with each other. Yeah. And as we pointed out last time, there is something grounded about introducing us to this whiz kid techie who is the source of just about everything that every mechanical marvel we can hope to see in new century and yet we also see instances where the characters aren't readily taking them up for very understandable and clearly communicated reasons like there's all this new technology but that doesn't mean that there aren't sort of 
acclimatizations or mm-hmm. that like you know every person in this world is going to be blown away and be like immediately immediately champing at the bit at it because mm-hmm. a lot of the time new technology is a bit like that some people are not really sure about it and it does require a bit of increments and things like that so it makes our hearts pang for harry because there's nothing wrong with the principles of the technology that she's she and the technology is striving for it's just that in these present iterations there are design principles that are in conflict with the principles and preferences of our characters yeah and i think this is part of what makes what her arc is clearly shaping up to be all the more important for her because if all she is is what she makes for others, then Steamheart is an opportunity to discover more about who she is in different situations. Thomas has protected her understandably from the outside world and allowed her to engage with certain parts of it on her terms, but that's sheltering her and she needs to grow up at a certain point so that she can discover everything that she is rather than just the stuff that she's most comfortable with. Mm. Finally, being done with (laughs) chapter eight, the first half of chapter nine is an intriguing cocktail of experiences. On one level, we sympathize with Abigail's distaste for the restrictive fashions assigned to women, the impracticality, the objectification, And the fact that this entire exercise feels like it's pandering to men's egos when all some of them want is to help forge a world where that isn't needful. And yet, as we come to the end of that first scene, one can see a different side of the story as well. When Abigail muses on, quote unquote, ruining playtime, where someone might choose to dress up in such a way And that should be considered equally valid. That Mm. being made to use makeup and fancy garments should not be a requirement for society, but there's nothing wrong with indulging if that is one's choice. Choice to wear what one wants is important in many varied situations. Whether we're talking about recent issues regarding the right to wear garments important to one's beliefs, like the hijab or other head wrap, or alternatively, Also the right to not have to wear them if one desires. The right to wear clothing supposedly coded for another gender. The choice to wear revealing garments and not be assaulted for it. Or even the arguments of school uniforms versus not. In this case, one can understand both Annie's desire to wear outfits that accentuate one's femininity, and Abigail finding it degrading to have to wear these garments just to fit in. Both choices are valid, but Abigail has obviously never had to consider this difference of opinion before, which is why there is no one absolutely right side to this altercation. The history lesson in some of the practical insanities of dresses catching fire is certainly as horrifying as it is morbidly interesting, and it does all you could ever need to emphasize the distaste and distrust of these fundamentally unnecessary garments. 
But in the same way that we talk about Thomas not accounting for every part of the human experience and the necessity for joy and rest, even and especially in times of crisis, Abigail is too preoccupied with the abject ridiculousness of it and the cynical motivations of truth who is doing all of it for the political gains that this can make, that she kind of takes for granted and misses the fact that some among their number may very well be happy to have the chance to indulge in this rare occasion. It's comparable to a situation I found myself in and strive to avoid these days where I disparage a piece of media that, for one reason or another, has the capacity to be easily read as trashy and in the process potentially upset someone who took a measure of recuperation from that piece of media because the world is mad and destabilizing and in the instances where we're in the company of people whose judgment and character we firmly trust then I for one never want to make someone feel bad for taking something of value that helps them get through the day just because that particular thing is completely against my own tastes or even extending just beyond emotional or motivational recuperation, if it can be a source of something that is really meaningful, then it shouldn't be our purview to push that down just Mm -hmm. because we feel so strongly against it. Yeah. You bring up the idea of necessity for joy and rest. And even though truth is specifically trying to get something out of it as you say this is a moment not unlike sarah wanting to partake of dance instruction and everything like that that is something that is not necessary to their ongoing goal of you know perpetuating the human race and defending against outside attackers and is just a moment to do something that has a little bit of an element of play to it, or just like something that you can get some kind of enjoyment out of, which is ironic considering Truth's later assertion that this is not playtime, that we're here to work. Um, (laughs) It's just that, like, you know, I guess, Truth, you can say whatever you want in terms of all of this, but some of these women might not have worn dresses like these, ever in their lives so the chance to like do something different do something that isn't deadly serious and might actually be pretty you know that should be equally valid if you like twilight i mean there's problematic stuff in twilight but there's way worse things to enjoy as being a part of your personal makeup usually Hmm. things that are harmful to others so you know Hmm. or or, or the recent thing that's going on where there are people that be like oh god the 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 new turning red movie is just so twee i'm just like assholes it's not for you okay (laughs) that's absolutely it and like I was watching Turning Red today and when people were looking at it and going like, oh God, it feels so like offbeat and like, you know, this 
looks a bit awkward. It's like, motherfucker, that's kind of the point. Like, <laughs> these people are delighting in the fact that they can just do this and feel comfortable with other people who can just have expressions of joy. And remember, the film's set in 2002. This is what it, kids were like back then. Yeah. yeah. Not like I know, I was there. Like, <laughs> I... So... It's one of those things where it simultaneously gets to be for people like now, but it's also an expression of someone and articulating a point in their life where it's like, yeah, I was into this stuff and I loved it. And this is an expression of that love. It's unapologetically that. So when you go, oh man, it's so like unapologetically this, it's like, congratulations, you just missed the point. <laughs> Yeah. Tirade over, tirade over. Watch Turning Red if you haven't already. I just fixed that today. It's great. I love it. It's on my list. The problem mm. is that I've been trying to make time to see it with Maureen, and unfortunately, we keep. Oh, on Maureen not will being... like it. Yes, Maureen. It, it, it's a. It's about someone finding a internal giant fluffy rage beast inside them. Of course, she's going to love it. And I will say it right now, without sort of giving away anything, any feelings you have of like, oh, this is a really sort of fun premise, and you can certainly see the subtext there. And it's like, they're not making it subtext. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. yeah, enjoy. It's very good. I love how much of it is actually quite directly about what it is about. Hopefully, we're both going to have the energy and the time to see it tonight. So, very much looking forward to it. Enjoy uh, when you do. <laughs> mm -hmm. We did, in fact, watch it the night of the Skype recording. And the movie was everything I wanted it to be. I audibly laughed and squeed, and it was a brilliant watching experience. Although, I will add that both of us agreed that Maureen's favorite character was Abby with her rebellious, wild, burn-it-to-the-ground intensity. Speaking about subtext, or the lack thereof... In New Century, the devil you say. Well, okay. Well, this, there's there are things that are subtext, and there are things that are text. I would say there's probably a lot more things that are subtext or symbolic in New Century, if only because that's how Alex's work gets as dense as it does with, like... <laughs> references or this means that stuff in there that we have covered in great detail in all of the books we have done so far the introduction of annie who is ostensibly going to be the leader of team steam as established back during chapter six wearing this dress that is supposed to be the representation of columbia the supposed female embodiment of america the thing that mm. DC itself is named after, um, that there, like, there are many instances of Columbia being a part of the nomenclature of America, including the film company Columbia. Different... In Bioshock Infinite, that's the name of the setting. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, that's that's a modern example of it, but just like when the U.S. was still being founded. There are a number of places that are named with this female symbol of America mm. in mind, basically. I I could get out a, a, a Wikipedia and go through mm. the whole list. I had to in order to learn more about this sure. mythology. I don't know mm. a whole mm. lot about the modern mythologies of so, America, aside from the political ones. So. Suffice to say, because especially at this 
point in time, the modern structure of America was a relatively young country. Mm, mm. It meant that there wasn't this centuries upon centuries of mythology and symbology and baked into it. So whatever cultural iconography and figures that became part of this newly emergent national iconography, Mm. There was a lot of import placed to that because it's like, look, we have so many of these. We're going to make these really part of like us establishing this is what America is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have complicated feelings about the Avatar of Columbia, especially since she is invoked in things like the American Progress painting, Herald the Evil of Manifest Destiny, but. At the same time, Columbia was also intrinsic to the creation of the Statue of Liberty, which is an ideal not always lived up to, but certainly worth striving for. And even though the outfit that Truth comes up with sounds incredibly nationalistic and gaudy, I still like the idea that Annie could embody a version of Columbia that is not toxic. The thing that shockingly came to mind is that, um, just as I mentioned the Columbia Pictures studio a moment ago, the logo is traditionally, you know, the female avatar in like a robe and holding a torch, much like the Statue of Liberty is. But for a very specific um, movie that was made in 1965 with Jane Fonda uh, called Cat Bailu, which was, Cat Bailu was a female gunslinger it was a bit of a comedy but the woman in the torch was replaced with a cowgirl shooting pistols and that makes me love the replacement dress that frank got for annie even more because she can wear her gun belt with the dress and it basically comes across then not as an expression of violence but as an expression of empowerment Mm. So if we must use the problematic symbol of Columbia to rally public approval, then this depiction of her through Annie, the embodiment of a better America, that feels better to us. For those of you that are suddenly thinking, wait, I've seen that image of a cowgirl shooting guns with the Columbia logo before, but I've never heard of Cat Bailu. There's a reason why. Most of us became aware of it due to the opening of Into the Spider-Verse, which overlaid many different versions of the Columbia Pictures avatar in order to hint at the multiversal nature of the movie. Truth is trying to force a identity or a persona or just an outfit that is emblematic of a figure and a set of images that is not Annie's, but mm-hmm. it's being like, you will wear the Columbia dress and you will inhabit this identity and what Frank is doing here is saying here's the tools for you to be able to make this your own Mm -hmm. and thereby it is your identity rather than you having to wear something which is emblematic of like what we are determining is the collective identity of America. Like, everyone is going to try to make her Miss America here, Mm -hmm. but Frank wants her to be able to be exactly who she wants to be, Mm -hmm. and that's always, like, the best kind of support you could ask for. And in terms of, like, making use of Columbia and this outfit, 
that is the thing about symbols and cultural touchstones. Yes, there are certain pieces of iconography that are so poisoned and intrinsically linked to the philosophies and groups it stands for that they are more or less cemented in that dark space and you can't really uproot them from there, Mm. which can mean some pieces of our cultural history are lost because they have been co-opted by evil men meaning to spread an evil idea. Yeah, that's like when we talk about white nationalist movements or hate groups stealing the iconography of, say, Norse mythology, Mm. that literally pisses us off because that is entirely not what these symbols are meant to represent. Yes, it's just like, you know, that's fucking sickening Mm -hmm. but it is nice when i hear i haven't got all the way through the brown show but i liked hearing that i think a certain tattoo of axes was something that was originally from similar groups but then got re like oh yeah yeah, contextualized and you picked up by specifically the lesbian group of the lgbtq plus which is great because it's basically like yeah you know fuck you you didn't you didn't invent this so we're just going to take this i'm going to make it something awesome instead of this and we know it will piss you off so that's great in case that went over people's heads too quickly toby is referring to the labrus the double-headed axe symbol that originated in minoan crete based on its original meaning during that time It was reclaimed by modern feminist and lesbian communities, and as a result, one of the characters in Bound was wearing the symbol as a tattoo. In a similar philosophy, on that flip side, the morphability of symbols means that if a pre-existing one has elements that are commendable, but it's got a few other thorny or off-putting elements at the periphery, then you can prune them back and reshape the symbol into something that keeps what you love and what you want to strive for, but applies it to a new modern or personal standard that embodies your redefined view of what that symbol should represent. Think Captain America and how the MCU character has managed to convey a set of ideals that are far removed from the periods of the character's history that were so out of step that even at the time they retroactively said, yeah, that wasn't the real Captain America. The real one's been frozen all this time. Yeah, replaced by an imposter. That's part of what the whole John Walker thing Mm. originally was about. On top of that, this feels like it's a part of a larger conversation, which is not necessarily New Century associated, in Mm. that when you're talking about how Captain America's story has been changed to be like, okay, yes, all of this stuff did still happen, but this is the explanation for it, so we don't destroy what Captain America was originally supposed to stand for, that Mm. has a heavy mythological feel to it because the stories of the gods or the mythic heroes definitely changed depending on what culture you were talking about or coming from one culture to another one. Although in that case, a lot of the time you tend to literally have retcons as opposed to trying to make it all part of one story because there tended to be like political or societal implications to be like, okay, this version of Dionysus never existed. This is the version we have now. If you watch enough OSP talking about the gods, you'll understand what I'm referring to here. But Mm. yeah, that's this is 
superheroes, and I'm not the first one to say this, are the modern gods. Which is why there are elements of wow, um, storytelling. that's a reading I've never heard before. <laughs> Further on the subject of symbolism and on mimetic stuff, at the midpoint of chapter nine, we are reminded once more of Alex's preferred media being movies. Because while it's not in the novel, because it's an audio cue and couldn't really be done very well in the novel, the end of that scene with Frank and Annie uses audio cues that make us, me in particular, but I'm sure that more people recognize it besides me, the iconic necklace scene in Pretty Woman. That's one of those moments in film history that is so mimetic even people that have never seen the movie are likely familiar with it because it's been referenced and you know these are the greatest moments in movies or you know in other people talking about movies and everything like that same with the whole get away from her you son of a bitch it's that mm. level of mimetic and yeah. it's not needful to have that moment be in there but it's a wonderful bit of punctuation for the scene once more making the audio drama more cinematic and enabling us to picture this moment in our minds. It's even helped along by the fact that Frank's first gift is a sleeveless red dress, same as the one that Julia Roberts wore during the scene. Wow. Good pull. Mm. <laughs> I didn't have a lot to add to that in the notes. Uh, yeah. It was legitimately just that. But yeah, that was a good catch. Mm. And... To a certain extent, I kind of understand why that moment might have been added, because mm. the first scene ended on a kind of a sour note. Even though we're on Abigail's side, she ends that moment kind of feeling like, oh, I, I, I ruined something here mm -hmm. just by being me. And then the scene with Frank and Annie was very heartwarming. But then we have Sarah's part of that chapter, and we mm. feel immensely sad and frustrated as we see the backstory behind the fake armored jacket that Sarah tells us about. It makes clear why she wasn't wearing her armor during the final speech in the Arlington novel. Mm. That narrative cannot be changed. Sarah's death has already happened to those of us that experienced that story. And this moment in Steamheart merely offers the explanation for why Truth was like, she's not wearing her armor. But as Sarah does that internal monologue, as she considers her options, we see her logic as to why she made the choice now as opposed to later, but it frustrates us because she actually would have been safer going without her armor at the ball. As Abigail herself alludes to during the later chapter of the April Ball, she's like, why are you wearing your armor here? You're more likely to be poisoned at a party than you are to be shot. Part of it is that even Thomas's like paranoia isn't the definitive like he feels that he is the definitive voice on guiding america mm -hmm. and so much of his identity is in anticipating the worst but you know we are now in a position 
where we're starting to question Thomas's like mm -hmm. judgments a bit, lot more. So now even here we have Abigail pointing out, well, logically the better thing here would be to poison you rather mm -hmm. than that. So it's just little things that are shaking the sort of ironclad foundation we have of like Thomas being someone who has all of the potential like pathways considered. But that's part of the reason why wearing the jacket isn't necessarily about expecting someone to pull out a gun mm. at the April ball or at any time. Although, honestly, thinking about it, the idea of poison might not have been considered by Thomas because he might come to the conclusion that those that would want to kill him would not respect him enough to use the softer methods of removal as they would a white opponent. And that may not be a logical choice, since dead is dead. But one can see a twisted reasoning that would make sense to those who think black people are less than human. That's part of the reason why Sarah's explanation kind of makes sense for the moment, because she's saying that wearing the jacket is symbolically saying, I do not trust you. Yeah. That's, and that, that's that, that, that feels thing, unintrinsic to her character which is why her choice in this moment we understand it it is mm. thematically satisfying mm -hmm. regardless of the fact that we know this moment is a setup for tragedy it shows us the very foundation of Hamarsha that Sarah died as a result of being true to herself mm. and though we want to see the foundation of being true to oneself being the thing that leads to victory like for Annie or Miguel we have to admit that sometimes the world pushes back against people that are too empathetic. And the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished, is not necessarily a caution against thinking the best of people, but rather a caution that even things done for the best of reasons sometimes have unfortunate consequences, that you will not always be rewarded for having done what you feel is the right thing. Hmm. We trust the decision being made because it's made without the sort of context of knowing that, oh, I'm going in there and there's I, I've been given a warning to say there's a likelihood you'll be assassinated. This is quite a quiet moment. We don't really feel as if any of the characters are going to be in danger within this or the next chapter. There's just something about the structuring which feels that we can trust that this party is just a last party before the journey begins mm. so with sarah sitting here in her room a good amount of time before her assassination it feels like the quietest and safest and most personal situation she could be in to make this decision and to think it through so when she makes this decision, we can trust that this is probably the decision she would make at any point, that mm -hmm. she really is, like, she gives herself the time to fully consider it, and she makes that choice regardless. And it's a moment suspended in time that makes us mourn for her all over again. She's in this room she has that safety the atmosphere and the music makes this a 
safe haven mm. even if it's only for a sadly temporary duration and she considers the multiple paths forward while the anticipation of her own death is something like it's thought about in an abstract sense she isn't thinking about the specifics of as you say what happens if someone pulls a gun because that's the point she doesn't want to be the arlington who anticipates and prepares for the worst in people which means she's not thinking about the armor and the jacket in the sense of the practical concern of someone wishing to kill her we are seeing her headspace is considering the empathetic side of it before mm -hmm. the practical concern of safety it becomes a moment where she is considering her ultimate fate then even if it doesn't feel apparent to her in the moment it infuses the rest of the time at the party with a sense of sad fleeting resplendence and rest because we know for a fact that trouble is on the horizon and that none of these people are safe even if they can manage to feel safe on an occasion such as this yeah i i don't have much to add beyond that <laughs> it is a character moment for sarah it's one of the few character moments that are left for her so we just sort of have to sit with that and find a way to come to some acceptance of what has already happened to us in a certain sense because we have lived through her death in the pages of arlington and this is just a form of closure i mm. guess to her ultimate fate because we're doing a form of time travel mm. it's like we are the silent time traveler who is standing in that room having to see this and you see the pathways there she is even saying even though it's just about this one night it's about all other nights all other public appearances when she says i see a range of three pathways available to me and we're saying to ourselves like yes no like think about this really think about it and we hear it and we're powerless to change it even though we know what the domino effect of that choice will be and its final destination Wait, so are you saying that I'm a watcher and I need to shave my head because I'm the watcher? <laughs> maybe. Um, no, no maybe. okay. I, I do need to get a haircut, but that is neither here nor there. <laughs> we're, we're getting close to the end. Let's 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 make a break for it. Chapter yeah, final chapter. All right, let's do this. So, uh, can we get all the talking points done in one session? Maybe uh, if I can shut up long enough. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I'll try to be as um, concise as possible. <laughs> We are introduced to one of the final members of Team Steam, Raven. Like Jeremy, he only got a little bit of characterization in Arlington, which makes him prime fodder for learning more about him in the more intimate environs of an epic journey. Mm, development. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but his introduction here also shows us what kind of narrative voice he is going to be adding to storytelling of Steamheart. Look, in Steamheart, you're like you're only as good as your narrative style in terms of like, I, hey, are you a main character? Yes. All right. What's what can you bring to the table? I narrate like this. Okay, you're in. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like at some point we should talk a little bit more about that, seeing as we have already discussed the differences in how 
Crow and Miguel experience the world, but like in terms of James, he is very detail oriented and mm. Abigail is very emotions oriented and mm. Raven writes everything like he's writing for an article, even yeah. if at you know, at, at a later point in the story, he's literally writing something down that he says, I am not going to publish this, but he still writes even his own personal thoughts or experiences like he would be writing an article. And that mm. shows in his narrative voice. It tells us more about his personality, which we've only seen a little bit of at this point. Jeremy and James bring curious minds to the journey, one of them being the optimist and one being the practical person. Annie and Abigail are doers, people that mm. want to enact change, but one of them is a rebel and one of them is the loyal soldier. Harry is the most internal and based on what we know of her, her narrative voice is about wanting to finally experience the world. Like she's going to be going back inside herself as she interacts with Steamheart and other stuff along the way in terms of like, what can she do? What can she build to help resolve the situation? But she also clearly wants to go out into the world and even had to fight with Thomas to a certain extent in order to achieve that, because it's not just about wanting to stay and take care of Steamheart anymore, which she honestly, she would have to go on the road to do anyway. She's not going to let Steamheart go without her at this point. This actually dovetails with her mm. personality be like, okay. If you're going to send Steamheart out there, it's not just that I'm the best driver. I have to take care of my girl. And I want to go see the world. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm going on an adventure, as, <laughs> as Bilbo might say. Absolutely. Uh, sorry, it's... I got enough on a little bit of a tangent there. Um, <laughs> That's quite all right. Uh, Frank is the supportive voice to everyone else's goals. And as we got into discussing a lot last time... Miguel is the outsider, returning to the world he came from to resolve his own past before finding his future. Raven is also an outsider, but of a different kind. Mm. It made me think about when he was writing about the DC riots from high atop a rooftop, that even as he is physically distancing himself from what is going on, he is mentally distancing himself from the world as well, engaging with it only to write about it, to comment on it. And the very end of this chapter specifically talks about how he is writing a book about the last days of mankind. If Jeremy is the curious optimist, then Raven is the curious pessimist. He mm -hmm. seems convinced that mankind will not be able to overcome its shortcomings. And at the very least wants to be around to see how it ends, wanting to be in the thick of it and learn all the secrets so he can write about them for his own edification, the chronicler of a people unable to escape its own downfall. After all, what is a raven but a heralder of portentous omens? Mm -hmm. Well, it's also a bit of a mangy bird, which fits our journalist quite well. <laughs> <laughs> And yet, I will add that while Raven is likely prepared for the worst in any situation, 
I read somewhere that cynics on some level very much want to be proven wrong. Raven felt sure that Thomas would disappear him, and was shocked when Thomas instead wanted to work with him. While we'll get more into Raven's characterization and motivations as the story develops, Raven's very own actions suggest that he writes because he wants to encourage thought, to potentially encourage change. It may well be what he hopes for behind his gruff front, that he sees the Steamheart expedition as the germ of something that could, in fact, help save humanity. But to protect himself, he expects the worst because to hope is to make himself vulnerable, and he likely doesn't want to do that. Raven's practical contributions to the mission are as a chronicler, and it seems he chooses to place himself at enough of a distance to get the perspective he needs on what he writes about. But he literally gets a bird's eye view. I may have made that comment in Arlington when he is <laughs> writing at a distance. But yeah, yeah. As we saw when Thomas brought him to a quiet room to interview him, we see that Raven is not afraid to still do his job or stand by what he writes when he's brought right up next to the subject of his writing, when he is on the forefront. On an emotional level, his presence is like he's another people person. All people are people people. Just some aren't personable persons. Not in necessarily in a way where he's able to charm someone or connect with them like Annie or Abigail might, but in a way where he's able to discern people's qualities and gain a keen insight. Essentially, we're going to need him there to cut through things and say the truth of what he sees and assesses about people, just like when he says that Abigail was scared shitless but hides it well. I think it can be oddly reassuring when someone dispels any projected airs of assurance because if they're not doing so in a way that seems like they could be a threat like say seth does in every encounter thus far with humanity raven for all his jackassness he never seems like he's anything more dangerous than a bit of an asshole then you can let down your guard when you're around someone like that because he'll cut through it but he won't necessarily judge you like too severely in this case he says this to abigail but he's not like sort of condemning her for it it's just like no i see you you're this like Mm -hmm. and because abigail has been dealing with so many people at this party who are putting on airs and presenting like an insincere front and she's been critical of it herself someone who says yes i know exactly what you're feeling and when she says i'm pleased to meet you he's yes how do you do and all that like those niceties and crap like (laughs) he is just as tired of it and i think that that's kind of what abigail needs at this particular moment What I think Raven does here is he lets down his guard. And yes, contrary to what Thomas says, sometimes letting down your guard is good for the soul. Because when Abigail was talking about what her issues were with the scorpion suit, she mentions, oh, I could never let your guard in this. And he's like, why why the fuck would you want to let down your guard? What's the point of that? Mm. And here we see what the reason for that is. Yeah, that's a moment that I didn't think to comment on back in chapter eight, partly because we had already talked about so many different elements. So many others, yeah. But 
that moment is a reflection of the energy that Abigail wants to bring to interacting with the world, particularly on the basis of her changed opinion about how to resolve conflict. I can imagine that there was a point in Abigail where she would have been absolutely fine with wearing that armor because she would have seen every situation as something to be resolved at the point of a gun if things went south. Mm. That's a shocking sudden synchronicity in terms of the reason why Abigail doesn't want to wear the scorpion suit and the reason why Sarah doesn't want to wear the armored jacket. <laughs> That's absolutely <laughs> it. Oh my yeah. God. These chapters are layered. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's brilliant. Connected to what you were just talking about, in spite of the way his manner might put off both the reading audience or the audio drama audience and the people that exist in the story itself, it's hard not to find his blunt forthrightness compelling as a mm. part of his character. His opening words make us like him for his ability to speak bluntly about the fucked up natural order of things and how it didn't protect the rich and powerful from true calamity when it happened. Mm. It even addresses directly what let them go only hinted at, that power from wealth and or class structure tends to operate by consensus and that things like the Wendigo show how flimsy a framework that is. The flip side to that is that, as Arlington itself has showed, toxic frameworks have inertia. As much as good people try to enact change, the forces of the old order hang on, which is why something like the April Ball even exists. Even as we enjoy Raven referring to these remaining magnates and politicians as moths, it makes us frustrated how keenly he sees especially given the way it reflects on the real world. We have been undergoing slow-moving calamity for years now with both climate change and Trump and then COVID, and the rich have managed to use their power and resources to be mostly unscathed. Mm. Raven is that person you come to to get the unvarnished size of things, that means that when you do get moments of hope or observations of people's better qualities or something that suggests that the wider world or this country or even just that individual people have something to hold on to, you treasure that be and hold on to it because you know he means what he says. Mm. I don't have anything else to reflect on Raven right now because obviously he's only a small part of this particular chapter and hmm. we are going to have more of raven revealed to us over the course of this very long book hmm. and raven at this particular moment like he is deliberately kind of not really opening up necessarily he's yeah, exactly. kind of like when abigail is saying oh pleased to meet you he's not being untrue this is who he is but he's not palling up and opening up on a lot of things right now. He's just kind of being like, you've done so much sort of chatting with people. I'm just here to get your sense of it. Let's like not talk anything that's just not true. And because I'm trying to get my editing a little more under control, 
That's it for this week. Next week will be a little on the short side, because I was trying to make this last due to being behind on writing outlines, but since we were running out of time during the initial Skype session, I'll also splice in some of the topics we cut for time. Tune in next week for the rest of our thoughts on Chapter 10 on another trip through the window.